Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's myself, Panel Beater, and in the studio with me is Dr. Neo, and on Skype, Dr. Sharma. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Good morning do, you, do you ever do you ever think that you've you've joined the wrong profession? <laughs> I, I've been sitting here for the past oh, four or five years, yeah. listening to the the good people at Radio Marinara in the hour before us, and. Their job just sounds so much better than mine. You mean all that water and outdoors and surfing Surf- and diving? Surfing, diving. Sounds like hell. It just sounds... <laughs> and then you think about uh, the, the, the world of medicine and you're like, oh, I could, uh, I could do with a career change. <laughs> you like, reckon, reckon it's a bit different inside a hospital, pedi- or, pediatrics hospital? Or do you reckon... I think Dr. Sharma and I would make great surfing buddies. <laughs> Uh, no, look, I'm all for the revolution, the attempted and so far failed revolution of outdoor medicine, <laughs> of uh, practicing everything we do outdoors by the beach. I reckon I could get that. I could do that. I could get a private clinic. We could just uh, <laughs> play, in the, play in the uh, in the sandbox out the back. You know, go to that. Go down to the uh, go down to the beach. That sounds like the dream. Your connection to the marinara life is when it all goes horribly wrong. You know, somebody's accidentally forgot yes. the sunscreen and <laughs> come in with a burn or there's a shark attack. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately. They do have to deal, I've, I've heard marinara deal, um, obviously with great expertise and sensitivity, they, they do get confronted with a lot of the climate change stuff yeah. when they talk about some tropical reefs and stuff. That would be a bit of a downer. Oh, look, it would be. Um yeah, not, not to not to cut anyone else's bread, uh, but we're uh, <laughs> it, it's it's pretty devastating what's going to happen to our natural environments over the next twenty to thirty years. Oh dear. Oh dear. Um, but I guess uh, speaking about pretty devastating, I think that um, as much as we're not going to dwell on it, as much as we're not going to get into the politics of it, I think it would be remiss of us to not uh, discuss what's been happening um, in Israel and Palestine, and I think. I don't particularly want to get into the into the weeds of it, but I think just acknowledging that it is a pretty devastating humanitarian crisis at the moment, and um, there's lots of good reporting going in mm. um, from the Gaza Strip, particularly from uh, media outlets like Al Jazeera, and you get to see some pretty devastating things, such as the hospitals not working without power, um, no fresh, no you know, clean water, no medicine. You know, I think about my job on a day-to-day basis. I think about how hard it is for me to do it in an extremely well-resourced um, environment. And then I think about what it would be like there and I, I couldn't even honestly imagine it. Yeah, I don't think I can begin to imagine. You know, you, you can sort of like perhaps draw on some reference points from... Wars in the past that have been well documented, mm. and and what's gone on as far as delivery of services, uh, hospital services, medical services, and so on. But this sounds horrible. I mean, I've worked in some pretty rural areas and some and some pretty rural hospitals, but I've never had to worry about the power going off for my ventilated babies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. And it doesn't look like it's going to end really soon. So, no. if any of our listeners have family and friends, loved ones over in the region, um, thoughts. 
to you and hopefully um, everyone is safe. Uh, Dr Sharma, how are you doing? After that little downer, right. we went from climate change mm. to a war zone. You got you got something to perk us up? <laughs> uh, no, no, not particularly. I mean, I, I think uh, what, whatever small amount of suffering I was enduring this morning um, kind of pales in comparison. But, um, you know, it's uh, I, I'm what I'm currently suffering from is, is the perennial ailment of, of, of hay fever currently, actually. The, fr- oh. the freshly mowed lawn um, is wreaking havoc on my sinuses. And uh, it's it just actually reminds me that as much as I have this kind of amazing flowery picture of, of summer and spring in my head, it never really starts off like that. It's actually <laughs> it, 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 it's far more oppressive than I, my, my winter self imagines it to be. Dr. Sharma, have you ever, um, now we're getting into your personal medical history, have you ever considered uh, <laughs> allergy testing and um, trying to undergo some sort of desensitization program? Yeah, it's interesting. So it's something that's kind of crossed my mind uh, a few times. So the funny thing about desensitization is I think it's over the years there's been more and more evidence accumulating how it really can cure people. Um, but it takes a long time to do. It's really quite expensive. Um, and uh, and really, we, we tend to only really suggest to people if the simple conservative strategies have failed. And the, the reality is the simple stuff for me that works really well if and when I stick to it. Um, so it's the daily nasal steroid sprays. So they, once they really start to kick in, and, and I, can, I can feel I'm way better than it was a couple of weeks ago, has a pretty good, great effect. So it's one of those fascinating things where, you can you can manage it, and it takes you know, a certain amount of effort, or you can cure it, which takes a lot more effort. What's where does it match up? You know, mm. do, you, do you keep putting a little bit of effort for years and years and years, or just get it all fixed in one go in a very kind of expensive but effective way? Um, I don't know whether we're the right balance lies. And the nasal steroids are fascinating because I think people tend to uh, shy away from them and use them um, on a ad hoc basis, but it's really that consistent use as a preventative, much like your your asthma inhaler, uh, the steroid-based preventative one, rather than the ad hoc, oh, I've got symptoms now, let's use it right now. Oh, I'll tell you what, Doctor, you've hit the nail on the head uh, because it is an uphill battle trying to convince people that, hey, actually, you, you and we have been telling you to do it the wrong way around, that it is actually the sprays every day and the tablets were on top of when you need. And, but the, the point is the public and healthcare workers will all kind of learn this curriculum for decades and decades and decades. It's taken a long time to convince people to go the other way. But once, once we'll get there, I think we'll all find that, you know, hay fever will be as man- managed as well as asthma has been in the last, you know, 10 years compared to the 10 years prior to that. There you go. Nine minutes into the show, we've already hit climate change, war zones and asthma and <laughs> hay fever. What other show in Melbourne will give you that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something for the whole family. Yeah. Um, look, we do uh, have uh, an actual show ahead of us. <laughs> we've got a couple of guests. Um, uh, let's go backwards. You've got somebody lined up for the second half of the show. Yeah, Dr. I've got the um, the excellent uh, Professor Richard Harvey, who is a uh, very well accomplished psychiatrist, who's going to be discussing um, his personal experiences with ADHD and how it's kind of changed over the course of his career. Um, and which I'm quite, I'm quite interested in because yeah. there's been a lot of media attention at the moment on ADHD, this, the troubles of, uh, of 
referrals and expectations and i'm just interested to hear what it is like from the horse's mouth yeah yeah geez, it's been lots of lots of coverage of mm. it hasn't there and um i flippantly have said i thought we all have it now it's just seems so widespread mm. but i realize it's not as flippant as that um and well worth us having a chat um with professor harvey uh our first guest uh for this morning will be professor peter holland now professor peter holland caught our attention because he um published in the conversation uh, last week um, an article drawing attention to issues for the ambulance workforce um, and, in fact, um, had conducted a, a comparative global study of ambulance workforces in um, uh, Victoria and uh, in the UK and, um, uh, unfortunately, has revealed some real concerns um, for the current state of it and possible futures of it. So we're going to talk to Peter Holland, who is... Um, uh, Going to, uh, who comes from a, um, a human resource management um, uh, background and will bring that perspective. And, you know, this show has spoken about work for, uh, health sector workforces before when we've spoken about mm. GPs, when we've spoken about psychiatry and psychology and so on. So um, we'll see where we're at with ambulance services. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We're turning our attention now to Ambulance Workforce with uh, Professor Peter Holland. Professor Peter Holland uh, is a human resource manager, a professor of human resource management, director of the executive MBA at Swinburne University here in Melbourne. Previously at Monash and Director of the Faculty Research Centre, the Australian Consortium for Research on Employment and Work and Head of the Human Resource and Employee Relations Discipline and the Department of Management. Peter's worked in the Australian finance sector, consulted private and public sector um, for a variety of areas uh, related to human resource management and uh, employee relations. But this morning, he's with us to talk all things ambulance workforce. Thank you, and thank you for the introduction. Um, we would like to start perhaps a little bit broadly before we get in the weeds of uh, the research you've conducted. Um, let's get a sense of the ambulance workforce to begin with. Um, could you profile it for us? Is, a, is, it a, is it a young workforce? Is it a gendered workforce? You know. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, look, the, the, the gender is fairly fairly consistent, and it's a fairly diverse workforce. There's more and more women coming into the ambulance uh, area, um, so it's 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 developing well in terms of those type of profiles. Um, there's nothing significant about being one way or the other, but um, it's it's effectively. A, it's something that people come into because they're passionate about. It's very much a vocational job, and um, as you'd be aware, it, it it requires a university degree. So these people have spent three, four years at uni developing their skills before they go into the job. But um, being 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 sort of being a vocational and, and being very much a profession, it's still a tough job, and that's the sort of stuff that we've been finding in the research that we've been doing with Victorian Ambulance Union. What um, what's a typical trajectory for uh, somebody entering into that as a as a vocation? 
I guess it's, as I say, um, several of the universities, my old university, Jumentia Monash, at the Peninsula campus runs a, a specialist course for for paramedics. So they can do, I think it's a four-year course, and, and they can come in via that. But often, again, I'm not an expert in that area, but I think they, they get mentored through. So if you see some of these programs on the telly about uh, AMBOs, it's very much that you'll have a, a first-year person with a, a, a very much a, an experienced officer with them so um, they, they, they don't, they're sort of not left on their own to, to do the job but equally there is issues as well as the stress of the job um, I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware of several of the high profile issues of uh, ambulance workers being attacked while they're out mm. doing their job and saving lives which is one of the key things that the union is also trying to address because it's not something you expect when someone's out there on the footpath saving someone's life to be attacked by by a passerby or or anyone in the public really. So um, it it's it's isolated, but it doesn't help morale. I would suggest. Prof, that's um, uh, excellent point and something that we definitely want to get into um, just a little bit of time. I was in, I'm interested. You said that it's a a four-year university degree and uh, is quite a significant undertaking for a young person to do. What's the the typical trajectory and lifespan um, of a career in paramedicine? Um, well, can't really speak too much to that because our, our focus is mainly around surveying them about what's actually happening in the job. But I, I you know, I guess the thing is, you can. Uh, it's probably a flat hierarchy, like universities and places like that. So I guess you can move up um, into more administrative roles. But I couldn't really give you more detail uh, than that in terms of what they do in terms of their career. Our focus is more around what what the workplace well-being and environment is like for them. So, Professor, uh, with that in mind, you mentioned some of the stresses, you know, being worried about people attacking you on the street. Uh, but that said, what, what are some objective measures we have of what is it that paramedics are experiencing in terms of concerns, the degree of concerns, how widespread that's felt and what effect that's having on their, yeah. uh, I suppose, adherence to this as a career path? Yeah, um, the, the key thing, the, the, the research we did um, with uh, our Victoria Ambulance Union was um, by default uh, two periods over the significant lockdown period here in Melbourne and um, we, we asked them a variety of questions but things that came up were for example they, they work a 12 hour shift so obviously if you're in your 11th hour and you go to a serious uh, incident you, you don't stop at 12 hours and keep you so you have to keep going a lot of them said that even if they did a 12 hour shift that they had to do their admin work after that, so often it might have been a 14-hour shift for many of them, and I think that we're the only state in the country that doesn't pay overtime. So, a 14-hour shift is a long shift doing the, the work they do. Um, but as I said, it's it's the fact that uh, during the pandemic they were always in PPE. They had to assume every person coming into their truck, as they call them, uh, had COVID. So you can imagine being dressed up in that stuff out in the suburbs on a 40-degree day, pretty unpleasant stuff. So they're very much, they're, their job satisfaction is high, their vocational focus is high, but it's the grind of the, the extra work, um, the stresses of the job, um, in, inadequate staffing kept coming up in all the discussions we had with them that they just needed more resources to do their job. And these type of things gradually, you know, in combination grind people down. And we found that 60% plus had all the signs of burnout 
in terms of their job, disengaged, exhausted, never getting up with energy the next day. And this, we think, led into the fact that we found that turnover, um, or many who wanted to leave, up to 30%, 29% wanted to leave. In uh, in the future, they didn't see a career there, and 16% in the, in the next year now. What that really means is that people aren't marching out the door, 16% aren't marching out the door, but they're actually getting to a point where if an equivalent job comes along or something else comes along, I'm out of here. So there's a real concern of all that four years at university, the experience they pick up is being lost potentially to the ambulance service. Those are some pretty terrifying statistics. Um, I think when when you were just talking with um, paramedics, what... What was the conversation around how this could be fixed? Is it money that's needed? Is it more people training? Is it better work conditions? It, what what were the... a com- combination of a lot of that. And, you know, the, the key thing is we focus on things that can be done. Obviously, uh, I think there was a, a major injection of resources very close to when we did this report um, from, the, from the state government. But, yeah, resources is one of them. Um, the, the, the fact that you need to look at, you have a highly trained workforce here, you need to retain them. And if we're seeing issues of 60% burnout and 30% looking to move on, then you really have to get in and talk to the workforce and identify what you can do about it. I mean, resources is one attitude. I mean, you're, you're never going to change various issues in terms of how tough the job is, but these people go in with eyes wide open. They, they've been doing the training for four years. They know the shifts. They know what's expected of them. Um, but it, I guess it's more about those type of things. I think the union were on the uh, telly recently saying that they, you know, that a lot of the, the trucks are getting past their use-by date and um, they need new uniforms. There's just, I know there's a lot of strain on budgets, but there's a lot of things that I would argue could be done from the report that we did that suggests it's within capacity of management to address. Professor, how um, how much of what's going on right now is a hangover from um, the experience of COVID and the and the resource pressures that came about yeah. then, or does do some is the genesis of this story go back even beyond before that? Um, well, it's, it's actually a very good question, Ken. Um, the, the the research was initially started pre the pandemic, where the union came to us to say, "Look, we've got some issues here. Would you survey our workforce?" And then we obviously had the pandemic, so. Those issues were there. Arguably, the pandemic exacerbated it, as we all sadly know that we were the most locked down city in the world and dealing with the issues of them having to assume every patient was COVID and also as well wearing the PPE. They were, they were tough, but, but they saw it through. And I think a lot of them sort of it exacerbated issues of, of the, just the shift work the fatigue, the lack of resources. And I think that um, the, the report that we, we completed at the end of last year indicated that these issues were not going away post the pandemic. So I think it's a case of, while it's a tough job, um, they, they are professionals, they know what to expect, but um, issues of you know uh, the trucks being uh, out of date, needing better uniforms and things like this are all the type of things that um, are within the power of uh, those in charge to allocate resources to, but again, it's it's we we provide the data. Um, the data is indicating there are very stressed out 
and fatigued workforce, and they're highly skilled. So while they might be specialising in paramedic medicine, they can they can find they've got a university degree, and it's a tight labour market. So you know, it's 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 to be aware of if you've you've trained someone for four years and they've got those skills, you just don't want to lose them. Professor, just a quick clarification on that data. Uh, are paramedics currently leaving the workforce or are they just look like you know, they're, they're a threat of leaving? And I suppose my question is, who's at most risk uh, of, of leaving? Um, oh, yeah. Good point again. The um, paramedics are perhaps less experienced or is it the yeah, ones that have their later career? Yeah, it, it's very much that that, that, that that first 10 years seem to be where the key issues are because I think I think they see the stresses and strains of the job and they're not, not going away. And as I said, you know, a 12-hour shift is effectively a 14-hour shift and you don't get paid for overtime. So it's, it's that, that grind, I think, part of it. Also as well, as I say, it's a, it, it can be a, a violent uh, environment and very stressful to work in in that respect. So there's a culmination of factors, but what we found, I think, generally is it's, it's that within the first, so the first five to ten years is when most of them consider leaving, because I think the key thing you look at there is that they don't see a long-term career there, and, and that's probably a concerning thing. But again, that, that's something that's a good point that requires some further research into why they're in, in this situation and what, what they see in terms of alternatives. I, I don't think it's a, a point of saying, I didn't realise what type of job it is. You, you don't do it for four years at uni and then go and work and find out, oh, suddenly I don't like it. There, there are many mitigating factors, but we, we suggest that you know, issues around um, you know, uh, workplace violence, uh, the shift work, can that be changed? All those type of issues come together where people go, oh, I don't think I see a future here. Um, You're on radiotherapy. We're talking with Professor Peter Holland about the uh, ambulance workforce and some issues that have been uncovered uh, through some recent research. Uh, Professor Holland, what um, what do we know about um, the implications for uh, the stresses and the well-being of the workforce at the moment? Uh, are reports evident of um, issues related to quality of service, even if the best intentions are there? Yeah, no, that's a good, again, a good point. I mean, I've just got a quote here that's, you know, typical of we, the quotes when we, we ask them for quotes and not, not um, stimulate them to suggest anything. Say, is there anything else you want to say? And people say things, we are, resent, we are relentlessly flogged and talk about the inadequate staffing. And also as well, they say they've got too much to do in the time they need to, which, again, is likely to affect the quality of the work they do. That they do identify that they have really good support from their colleagues right. in, in respect of doing their job because obviously you see a, see a lot of trauma in this job as well. But again, there was that indication that they thought that the, the amount of work they have to do is impacting on the quality of the work they do. And now, again, it's, all, it's, it's very much a perception, but these are the people who are right. literally at the coalface here. So um, they wouldn't be making these calls if they didn't think that they were concerned about them. In the little time we've got left, I'd like to just uh, turn to the attention you gave uh, for international comparison. Um, oh, you, yeah. you looked at uh, some ambulance workforces elsewhere as well, right? That's right, yes. We, uh, colleagues I, I, I know and work with in Wales did a comparative study as well. We, um, Victoria, Wales are about the same size um, 
in terms of population and size of their ambulance force, and speak a speak a speak a version of English that we both both can understand <laughs> with each other. So yeah, they they did a study and found very similar stuff as well because um, the British health system, um, I think. My own opinion, I think, is in, in a worse state than ours certainly is. But they found the same sort of things arising. The, the workers were being, you know, pushed to the point where resources were required to be significantly invested into them. There, they, they, they had higher turnover perceptions uh, than us, um, uh, which is concerning for them. But uh, we had more burnout, I think, uh, indicators than they did. So, six of one, half a dozen of the other. But it, it's, it's a clear indication that these frontline health workers have done a lot of work. I mean, if you remember, particularly in Britain, they had the applause, I think, at six o'clock in the evening to, to thank these workers. And, you know, at the end of the day, pretty much a lot of them are, are burnt out and they need more support. And I think a lot of them feel a little bit resentful, particularly from the Welsh study that after doing all that, being on the front line, um, the, many of them are on strike for pay. Uh, they're getting pay offers that are below inflation. So these, it's like all these indicators just build up for people to say, is this worth doing this job? 12-hour shifts, you know, Saturday, Sunday nights, the tough times, Friday night, being away from your family. Some people get to a point where they go, you know, it's just not worth it. Um, and these are just the indicators we're identifying. We we don't provide solutions that we're, we're not in that position, but there's the evidence is there that this is a highly stressed out and burnt out workforce that needs uh, a, a more resources put into it. Just before we do lose you, um, we um, where are we at with? The process of this, you know, so now we've got the data, we've got the research. Um, uh, is it getting under the? Uh, is it getting attention from those who will have the wherewithal and resources to deal with it? Yeah, well, as I said, we, we did it for the union, and, and you're more than welcome to talk to them. But um, uh, generally, we've seen nothing other than through the state government, they put extra resources into the ambulance service. Uh, we think we, we we think, and we got the indication from the union that our report was significant okay. in that. But uh, yeah, it's still a case that, like anything, the resources there, but they have to be targeted and put in the right place and and uh, trickle down to get a return on them. Uh, Professor Peter Holland, thank you very much for your time on a Sunday morning. It's um, We've been addressing a couple of workforce issues with GPs and psychiatrists and psychology and, and, and nurses and a number of others as well. So it's great to have an addition uh, to add to that our consideration of the ambulance workforce and uh, having you talk with, with us this morning. My pleasure, Ken. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. And you. We've been speaking with Professor Peter Holland uh, of Swinburne University about the ambulance workforce. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. All right, so we've got uh, Professor Richard Harvey with us on the phone. So um, Professor Richard Harvey is a is a doctor and consultant psychiatrist um, since 1998. He trained in the UK and migrated to uh, the good land of Australia in 2003, and he's held a variety of positions in public and private health and government in Australia. He is a clinical professor at Deakin University, where he uh, led the establishment of the psychiatry course in the new medical school. He is a research doctorate on the neuropsychiatry of dementia in younger people and is widely published. 
He mentors medical students and young doctors for the Pinnacle Foundation, the AMA, AMA and the RAND CP. He is in private practice and has been 100% telehealth since 2017, a bit of ahead of the game. And his particular interests are ADHD and transgender mental health. In his spare time, he has a five-acre garden, plays in a brass band, a pit orchestra, and a symphony, a symphony orchestra. He has two dogs, two cats, and a sulfur-crested cockatoo called Charlie. My God, Professor Harvey, how do you have time for anything in your life? Uh, good morning, everybody, and thank you for having me. Uh, I Well, I think it's like... If you want, if you want something done, ask a busy person. <laughs> I, I, you are truly busy, and I, um, hopefully, uh, Charlie will be making an appearance on the uh, on the show at some point. <laughs> I hope not. He's well away. He doesn't make a lot of noise. <laughs> so, Prof, thank you for thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, we've got you on the show um, to, unfortunately, not talk about your five acre garden or your multiple uh, orchestras, but talk about ADHD. Um, and I guess we'd love to start off a bit general and uh, investigate kind of what ADHD is uh, um, from a psychiatrist's point of view. How is it diagnosed? Um, and um, we can start there. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder um, is it's a complex neurodevelopmental condition. It's something that, uh, you know, I often say to patients, it, it is the way your brain is wired, uh, tends to result in difficulties with sustaining focus, uh, concentration, uh, and often linked with also being hyper, uh, you know, hyperactive, being overactive, fidgety, unable to sit still, unable to stop talking. Uh, you know, sometimes people are very uh, you know, very chatty and talkative. Um, the, the key thing with the, the diagnosis is establishing that it was there uh, when the person was a child. So I, I don't see kids with ADHD. I see, I see adults with ADHD, um, although I am very aware that uh, there's been an explosion in uh, people seeking assessments for both kids and adults. Um, in adults, the diagnosis is made by you know, taking a very careful developmental history, really listening very carefully to the person uh, as to what their early childhood, middle childhood, schooling and education has been like, um, to explore particular symptoms that we're looking for um, and the impact of those symptoms on their current day-to-day -day life. Uh, and that's the important thing. It, to be a disorder, it has to be something that is actually impairing your ability to function. So it's having difficulty. And that's across multiple areas of life. Um, I think often people think about ADHD as being, you know, just sort of naughty, hyperactive boys at school. Uh, I think it's very much more complicated than that. And it has profound effects on uh, people's mental health. Uh, it often gets mixed up and uh, uh, combined with a whole range of other conditions, including anxiety, depression, um, emotional dysregulation. Um, it also has profound effects on people's ability to maintain relationships, both relationships with intimate partners, but also just generally relationships with people around them. Uh, sometimes people find someone with ADHD to be quite difficult to get on with uh, for a whole variety of reasons, and that can have a very substantial impact on their sort of social and occupational functioning. So how, how are you going back in time to kind of investigate that this was present in their childhood? Are you asking um, the patient, their parents, um, their siblings? Is it getting school reports? What's your practice? 
My practice really is the school reports. I see the school reports as being the sort of gold standard uh, establishment of the presence of symptoms in childhood. Um, and so, you know, every patient that sees me, they get asked to do everything they possibly can to retrieve their school reports, either from their parents, from the attic, from their school. Uh, quite a few states, uh, particularly Tasmania, South Australia, they archive all of the school reports in the Department of Education. Um, patients can retrieve them from there. Um, and then it's a detailed, literally, reading every single comment the teacher ever made about the person uh, and uh, looking for comments from teachers about things that might, in retrospect, have been symptoms consistent with ADHD. Um, if that draws a blank, um, then it would be a matter of talking to particularly parents. Really, you really want to talk to a reliable adult who knew the, who knew the person when they were a child uh, and exploring with them uh, what symptoms they might have noticed um, during childhood, particularly before the age of 12. That's what we're, we're, we're really interested in. Professor, it's really interesting to see uh, that so much attention is paid to uh, what someone's development was back in school, and yet... You know, the way that, that ADHD is talked about is people talk about their kind of current symptoms. What do you think are the pitfalls of just focusing on what people's symptoms are like now as adults? And I'm talking about people going, you know, I want to talk about ADHD. Uh, what are the pitfalls of just looking at subjective symptoms being support, uh, reported by adults now as opposed to looking back into the past? Mm, so, the, you know, the big challenge in all of this is access to treatments. So treatments for ADHD, the first-line treatment for, for ADHD in adults, medication-wise, is the use of stimulant medications, uh, so typically dexamphetamine, lisdexamphetamine, methylphenidate. Um, these are Schedule Eight controlled substances, um, and that's really the reason that you have to be so careful, um, because if you're going to write a prescription for a controlled substance, you have to be very confident that you've got the diagnosis as right as it can possibly be. Um. And, and that, that said, though, um, what is the... What, can you tell us now, what is the current landscape, I suppose, of people being diagnosed um, with, with ADHD? I mean, you're, you're clearly going through a pretty detailed kind of forensic process here. Um, uh, Underdiagnosed, overdiagnosis, the way these things are being diagnosed, what are we seeing currently in 2023 in context of the mass, yeah. I suppose, explosion of awareness? Yeah, so the evidence is definitely this is substantially underdiagnosed. So, you know, many, many uh, kids uh, don't, get don't get a diagnosis, particularly girls. So girls more than boys tend to be underdiagnosed in childhood. Um, and, you know, there is a large number of people, you know, because of increased public awareness uh, about the diagnosis, there are a lot of people seeking out an assessment and a diagnosis. It's being identified by psychologists. I think we've got better at identifying what it, what it is, what it could be. Um, the problem is there is a, you know, there are massive bottlenecks in the system, particularly around access to psychiatrists uh, or services that might be able to provide that, the level of diagnosis that would enable somebody to prescribe a medication for the ADHD. Um, I, I would say that's the biggest thing at the moment. And so you've got a sort of a very narrow bottleneck, a large number of people seeking assessments um, in, in the context of, uh, you know, as you were talking about earlier, a healthcare system that is already under strain um, and it creates a you know, particularly difficult storm. There's been a lot of discussion at the moment around that, like, multitude and kind of avalanche of referrals taking place. From your from your experience, how have the the people presenting to your practice changed? Uh, is it uh, pathologization of, of 
normal behaviour in that people might be a little bit inattentive and a little bit spacey but are generally functioning well in their life or are you picking up more people who genuinely are needing help? Oh no, I would say that everybody I see genuinely needs help. Uh, you know, the commonest stories I hear are people failing in uh, employment, getting you know sacked, dismissed from jobs. Um, particularly, I see more sort of young people who are at university, and you know, the, the commonest story is that uh, they've been you know doing a three-year degree, and they're now in their seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth year of attempting to complete this degree with multiple failed units and just being unable to progress things. Um, and you know, we we also know that you know untreated ADHD has a, a huge cost. I mean, it's been estimated by the College of Psychiatrists to be around twenty billion dollars a year of lost economic productivity as a result of uh, undiagnosed ADHD. Um, and certainly, from my practice, you know, I see remarkable changes in patients who go from you know just being stuck, going round and round, repeating units in their degree, to you know passing, qualifying, getting employment, and you know. Of getting their lives back stable again, um, so you know it's it's a it's to me it's one of the most rewarding conditions that uh, I've treated in my career because the results can be so dramatic, um, but it's it's just not easy to get to that point. A huge amount of work is required, a lot of time, um, and as you say, it is it's a bit of a forensic process. But if you get it right, the re the rewards are substantial for the patient. So what does this mean for people who are on the wait list for six months, eight months? nine months 12 months are they are you sending out any information that you could uh potentially start a basic treatment so you start with um uh, like lifestyle measures that might help their symptoms or are they um uh is it all waiting for the appointment waiting for that review and waiting for medication it is waiting for yeah, it's, unfortunately, it's waiting for the appointment. It's very difficult for a doctor who has not met a patient to start giving them directions or suggesting things to them because that, in effect, is an intervention in their care which can have unintended or even harmful consequences. Um, so, you know, you know, harsh though it sounds, unfortunately, patients do need to wait to be seen to get properly assessed and then diagnosed before treatment can start. Um, I guess, you know, there are lots of resources that people can look at uh, and access themselves uh, to, you know, potentially help with their ADHD. Um, but it, it, until the diagnosis is made, it's all, you know, it, it has to be seen to be tentative. It's not, you know, I don't, you know patients can't self-diagnose themselves. Mm. Because I'm trying to get a picture right now of the, the the kind of deluge of referrals that are coming through for ADHD. I'm trying to understand how much underdiagnosis versus overdiagnosis is happening. Certainly, as you've said, it's pretty conclusive, massively underdiagnosed. I guess my question is that the, the deluge of referrals that are coming in, are a lot of these people ending up with diagnosis of ADHD or a lot of these people you're finding and telling them in your clinical practice actually, no, look, you've built up this expectation you've got ADHD. Actually, this is not the case. Well, how, does, how does it all play out? Mm, so I would say it's relatively unusual for it not to turn out to be ADHD if you've retrieved the school reports. So my tr 
triaging processes, and, and that's partly because I'm, it's, you know, the people I'm seeing, it's fairly relatively selective because I ask them to present their school reports with their referral, and if the school reports appear supportive of the diagnosis, um, then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to take them on. If they're not, if the, if the uh, you know, if the school reports are not supportive, um, then that's the point at which I would be, you know, potentially suggesting some other, other avenues they might want to explore. And uh, I guess um, we're now living uh, in 2023, um, and it would have been quite a difficult few years um, for a psychiatrist like yourself. But I guess uh, you've already, you already had your telehealth uh, service set up. But I, I, what I'm getting at is uh, what has COVID done to the whole situation? You know, it, has it um, has it escalated the referrals, uh, decreased the referrals? How has it changed? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I can only comment on an observation from my perspective where I sit in my practice is that, you know, prior to 2020, I would get occasional referrals from GPs for patients who might have ADHD or I'd, I would get occasional referrals from paediatricians wanting to hand over somebody who was already being treated. Um, something very curious happened. Uh, obviously, the, the, you know, the, the pandemic occurred. I'm not sure that, you know... I, it, it's very difficult to know exactly what happened. A lot of patients tell me that during the lockdowns or during that period when they were not at work, they became much more aware of uh, their symptoms. They also often would say, I came across something on TikTok uh, or on YouTube or on Facebook um, and that it really resonated with me uh, and that, you know, it described me exactly. Um, I think the loss of, uh, you know, particularly, particularly for, for you know, people in university and people who work in office environments, the loss of that social connectivity, that you've gone from sort of social learning where you're sitting in classrooms and lecture theatres and interacting with other people to a very isolated and, uh, and, and online learning environment where you're on your own, you're looking at a screen or you've got to listen to, you know, a poorly recorded lecture uh, that, you know, most people would find quite difficult, uh, that can really be very, very difficult for somebody who has difficulty with focus, concentration, attention, plus all the other things, that loss of social connectivity, I think, uh, you know, exacerbated the symptoms. And even now, you know, people just don't seem as, as social and outgoing you know, as, as they were pre-pandemic. Professor Harvey, what does the um, contemporary situation tell us about uh, our world, the world around us, both our built environment and things like technology and its relevance to the, the diagnosis in the first place and then perhaps something related to treatment? Um, I think it has upsides and downsides. Uh, you know, I think the upside is, you know, is things like telehealth, you know, making it much easier for patients to access uh, psychiatrists or access treatment, particularly if they're living in rural or regional areas or some states. So, you know, I see many, many patients from South Australia, for example, because South Australia has a very, very small number of private psychiatrists with no capacity to see people with ADHD. So, you know, I think technology has increase that. I think safety in healthcare systems has increased. So, you know, the systems I use are very connected. So, you know, all of the messaging is securely sent back to the GP with what's happening uh, using real-time prescribing monitoring systems. So, you know exactly what the patient has uh, picked up from the pharmacy and how much medication they've used. I think all of that substantially increases the safety. From the patient's perspective, 
Um, I, I was, you know, um, yeah, yeah I, I take your point, and I realised um, my question was taking us in that direction. Well, I think what I was getting at was, you know, what about the world around us, the built environment, the way our cities are designed, for example, and the way, you know, the, the, the overstimulation um, around us with technology, our phones, our screens, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I think screen use, that's a big one. So patients often report that, you know, they're having difficulty in their relationships because they can't put their phone down, they're constantly scrolling, not engaging in communication with partners or friends, uh, gaming, uh, you know, seemingly, you know, people with ADHD seem to very commonly get into sort of gaming addictions, porn addictions, um, which is all being driven by that immediate availability in a device that's sitting in your hand. Um, and, and I spend a lot of time you know, encouraging people to put their devices down, to have blackout periods. So, you know, look, you know, turn your phone off at seven and spend an hour speaking with your partner with no phone switched on. Um, and often patients come back and report that that's a really positive thing. It, it begins to help them let go of that need for sort of constant stimulation. You know, to, to me, it sounds, it's very much like it's, it's, you know, particularly in untreated ADHD, they're doing things to get a burst of dopamine, uh, and a burst of something exciting, something different, something dramatic something that you know increases the dopamine you know in inverted commas dopamine levels in their brain uh, and that's what I suspect makes it very those sort of things very very attractive to people with ADHD even the t even the you know the TikTok thing is the same Prof, we're, we're quickly running out of time thank you for all the the pearls of wisdom that you've been sharing I think we've got lots and lots of text coming through um, uh, with a couple of them focusing around um, what the, the gender differences are for ADHD do you mind just quickly talking to that um, yes. So, you know, in females, there seems to be a very much higher rate of code comorbidity, particularly with conditions such as autism spectrum disorders. Um, uh, women with ADHD very much, you know, it's, it's very unusual to find, them, to find evidence of hyperactivity. For example, in the school reports, often uh, uh, girls with ADHD tend to be very quite studious and, you know, get through their exams, get high grades in school. Um, but that only works when, it, when they're within a system, you know, the, the, the rigid structure of the school and almost the hyper-focus that comes from ADHD is sort of channeled into uh, their academic performance. As soon as they're out of the school environment, particularly in the university environment, which is unstructured, self-directed, uh, it all sort of falls apart. Um, and then if people also have a sort of comorbid autism spectrum disorder, um, then it can be very difficult for them to deal with the emotions related to uh, disappointment and distress uh, from seemingly being very, very competent in school to suddenly finding it to be an enormously difficult struggle to get through university or to get through um, you know, an employment situation. It almost sounds like they uh, are rife for an underdiagnosis um, compared to their male counterparts. Yes, that's right. Tends to much less likely to be diagnosed in childhood, because really the, the you know the focus up until relatively recently has been about you know hyperactive, you know disruptive boys in school that they're the ones that tend to get picked up and to be encouraged to be taken to a paediatrician for in inverted commas something to be done. Prof, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything that you'd like to plug before we uh, we say goodbye? <laughs> uh, I don't think. 
think there is, no. Uh-huh. Other, than, you know, other than that, uh, you know, people need to, you know, if you think you have ADHD, you sh- your first step is to go and talk to your GP. Don't go and looking things up on TikTok. Ah, words of wisdom there from, um, from the professor himself. Thank you so much for joining us on, today on Triple uh, R, and thank you so much to all of the people who text in. Uh, I'm very sorry that we didn't get to all of your, um, your very relevant questions. Thank you. We've been uh, speaking with Professor Harvey on ADHD and earlier we spoke with uh, Peter Holland on uh, a uh, state of affairs with the ambulance workforce. Thank you, Dr Sharma. Thank you, Dr Neo. Radiotherapy will be back with you 10 o'clock next Sunday morning. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.